Let me see. Let me see. I think we're off. Um, yeah. Oh, so yesterday I got. Mm. Oh, I saw on Twitter something about Google Bard, which is their AI, like their chat GPT, but Google's version is called Bard. Right. Bard. And so I had a bit of play with that. That was interesting, asking it some questions. And the way that you ask it a question, and it might go, mm, I'm just a machine learning chatbot. I don't have I don't have a response for that. And then you sort of phrase the question differently, or you might say, well, same question, but preface it with, based upon our earlier conversations, whatever your question was, and it would go, ah, blah, 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 and give you an answer. So it recognizes what you've sort of said must already. Get, yeah, it must give a history of what you've been, what you've been saying. Um, and you can, you can certainly sort of prompt it for things. Like I asked it, I was asking about left, um, left wing. I was, I was saying to it, um, do you understand the political term left wing? And it said, yes, I do. And then I said, okay, the data set that you've been trained on, how would you class it as left or right wing? And it said, oh, I'm just a machine learning thing. Yeah, I can't tell. Opinionate. Yeah. And I said, I, so I said, based upon our earlier conversation where you said you understood what left wing meant, how would you classify the data set you've been trained on? And it said, I'd classify the data set as left leaning because a number of the resources do come from what would be considered left wing sites. And I was like, that's interesting. Like it's, it's, it, you can try to draw out of it information. But you, you are, you know, you're quite proficient with IT stuff, so you probably know how to phrase it in a way from a computer point. You know, nah, man, no? that's the thing with this, with um, with Bard and GPT. It's just, it's like talking to someone, and honestly, it 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 feels like it's got, um, I don't want to say consciousness, but it it feels more than just a computer asking. It's, it's not like just typing into Google, mm. um, you know, tell me how something works you get a different level of response and you can go back and re-question it again and, and variate from, like I say, based on your pre, your last response, what would this mean in this context? Or you can ask the questions like, uh, uh, assuming that you are a, um, a football star, how would you feel about this thing? Or uh, assuming you are a, a doctor, how would you feel about this thing? Like you can get it to sort of take a viewpoint when looking at information. Yeah. It's scary how uh, advanced it's getting, isn't it? Maybe I'm just showing my age. No, I think it it is. It's scary, but I think it's the reason I think it's scary is because I think there will be a lot of people who will find it difficult to retain their jobs because of AI, mm. like a lot of things, copywriting, software developers. Like I always thought as a software developer that I'd be fine for a job. No way, man. Pay, uh, like patent attorneys as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that stuff's out the door. Yeah, like you can you can already ask it legal questions. You can say, oh, I'm living in this state, and I've got a dispute about the rent being paid by my tenant in a property, and I'd like to know if I'm able to ask them to be evicted or whatever your question might be. And it'll go, well, based upon this and that, and you can ask it for references and give me references. Um, I saw I saw someone the other day say, um, they were asking ChatGPT. They said. Are there any good sources for crime statistics in the San Francisco area? And it came back and went, yes, there are a number of those. And one of them, and it gave a link, and it was to the San Francisco Police Department public crime reporting stats. Surely that would be pretty common sense, though. That's where you would go if you were looking. You know, back in the olden days, you know, that's probably where, where you would head to find that information. You, so. you, you probably would. But here you can ask it. Here you can ask it things like, is there some? And it will give you a link. Then what this guy did was went there. Um, downloaded, I guess it was like an Excel file, 
And then he uploaded that Excel file into GPT-4 and said, based upon this information I've just uploaded, can you give me some um, trending analysis and tell me at least three interesting trends you see in this data? And so it takes the data, analyzes it, comes back with these charts and graphs showing homicide rates over the last four years have increased and blah, 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 blah. Like you would pay a data scientist to go and do for you. It just does. Does it work at the p-values as well? I guess so. If you asked it, if you asked it to on these, it probably would. Yeah, cool. yeah. It's 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 really good. Like it's code software. Mm. Ask it to write some code. Writes it. You can break the code, or if your code's not working, you can just paste it in. And go fix this code, and it will just tweak it for you and spit it out so that it works. Wasn't that? I don't know. Is it somebody who actually stopped working for a company because of the advancements in their AI software got so extreme that he went, nah, this is a bit like Terminator. I need to sort of... There's... there's I can't um, remember who it was, but somebody sort of... There was just, I think recently, I think one of the guys from the Google AI team has left. I'm not sure the reasons for him leaving, but I think that he here has some concerns about it progressing at the rate it is. Yeah, I think that's who I'm... I'm yeah, I remember just hearing that in the news. Yeah. The, the rate of progress... Is, is really quite mind-blowing. You know, it's every couple of days something's happening. Like I remember about about three months ago talking to someone on the show here and saying, look, you know, I was joking and saying, look, in two weeks' time, you'll be able to go to Netflix and you'll have the new subscription, the AI subscription, and you'll just say into your, you know, your, your remote control microphone, um, give me a movie, it's a bit like June, but it's got aliens coming down, set in the 1800s, and the hero is a girl called Cameron, whatever, and your TV screen will just go, tick, 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 and the film will start. And it will be all AI generated on the spot, just to your requirements, perfect graphics. And so anyhow, last week, um, a movie trailer came out for Star Wars, but in Wes Anderson style. It's all in the pinks and yellows and blues of Wes Anderson in there. But... It looks like it is a trailer for Star Wars. And there's a whole, this just week, there's a whole heap you can find out now, which is text to video where someone's just put in some prompts and then the AI has generated the video. I mean, you give that another, like you give that another two weeks and it'll be real good. And on a Friday night at home, you won't go to Netflix and look through action, drama, other people watched. It'll be like, Make me this. The kids will make it for you. The kids will come home. I go, Dad, 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 watch this movie I've prompted or suggested for you. And they will have said, make a movie for Dad's account. You know, it's a bit like Robocop, but something else and blah, blah, blah. But don't you think, like, I suppose this is one of my bugbears about, you know, like the digital industry now. Like, I miss going to a video shop or I miss going to, like, a record shop and flicking through stuff and, like, that having that something that's physical, physical. And tangible there yeah. and go, you know, looking around over it. Whereas everything now is just, it's all on a screen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. It's a, yeah. There's stuff that kids, you know, kids just won't know. Like our kids will probably never hold a newspaper and sit on a bus or a train and, and read a newspaper. Mm. Like we used to do in the mornings and our parents and grandparents would have done all the time. You know, even books, kids will do a lot more reading on, iPads, phones, Kindles, rather than actually holding a book and getting the smell of a book. Mm. Um, But it's a a weird thing because I was talking to my kids and they're like, Dad, you spend so much time on your phone. And I was like, yeah, I do. But then I thought, well, hang on. I read on here. I watch 
television. I don't watch any television. I watch YouTube. Yeah, I like um, podcasts and things. Um, I read the news on here. I get the weather on here. So like, yes, I do spend time on my phone. But if I didn't have my phone, I'd still be spending time doing those things, seeking that information. You know, like I'd be looking up the weather somewhere. I'd be watching TV. I'd be reading the newspaper. But now that, like you say, that's all just condensed down to digital. It's in mm. just one device now. Mm. Anyhow, so... Yesterday, I saw on Twitter a link to uh, Google's AI AI test kitchen, and it has some music AI there. And I signed up for it, and I got the email today. It's like, yep, your turn. You can go and play with it now. And so this morning, me and the kids were just typing in um, some funky jazz with a cool saxophone and flute, and it goes tick, 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 tick. It starts playing music and it's a band playing, it's cool, funky jazz, and it's got a saxophone and a flute, and then it plays for about 30 seconds. And then it gives you a second one that's created, and they're actually asking people to help train it. So, of the two, you've got to choose which one you thought was a better match for what you asked it for. Yeah, I said, um, uh, Bass, bass driven hard rock with screaming guitars and it comes out with this like hard rock stuff and so it's not actual other people's songs it's um I, it's generated some grooves itself and then gone what do you reckon yeah interesting you want people want feedback on that because everyone's got different um tastes and you know yeah i, so. I, I think they just kept trying to get some feedback to guide on We've given you two responses to what you asked for. Which one do you think better aligned? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you've given a description. Yep. Does this match a description or is this a better match of a description? Yeah. As opposed to which one you like more, yeah. which is more subjective as opposed to, uh, you know, the other one being more formal. Yeah. That's that's it. We, we were typed in, um, I was typing in uh, scary music and Locke was looking over my shoulder going oh dad make it say really so I said really scary music he goes really 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 scary music okay, and they buy baby shark after that yeah <laughs> but what it came up with for us was not very scary it right. was but of like of the two options you were able to select one of them was one of them had too much rhythm one of them had just too much like drums going it to be scary right you know we were going so then we went we just said oh we said haunting music haunting got it a lot closer to what you're expecting you know there's sort of strings yeah. and echoey sounds there was more of that so it's definitely still learning but fun and uh i did um i did something like uh 90s um jazz hop or something like that and the track it came out with, I was like, I could listen to that all day. Like, it was really good. Did you try mixing some genres as well just to see, you know, <laughs> sort of, you know, like Welsh orchestral, yeah. um, <laughs> trip hop, funk? I haven't yet, but I imagine it'll, I imagine there's probably right now around the world, there's probably a million people using it now because it's a Google thing, training it. And like every hour, it's just getting more accurate in terms of interpreting people's mm. prompts for things. So you'll be able to, to yeah, I, I think it won't be long. I'm I'm looking forward to that because, you know, I've always imagined some tracks that I'd like to make in my head, but they're big soundscapey things, and I don't have the musical talent or really time to like even pick all the instruments on some software and try and put it together. But if I can say, you know, dark 
cloudy evening, moon, a wolf howling, you know, a, slight, you know, a bass starts in the background and give it some prompts and it comes out with something where then like you can with Bard and GPT, we can go, okay, based on what you've just done, drop out the wolf howling, yeah. but give us a little bit just more keyboards mm-hmm. that is kind of in a spooky sense. And I imagine after you've talked to it a few times, it'll kind of get your feel for what a spooky sense might mean in terms of sound. I reckon you'll just be able to craft these amazing things. It's like video. You'll be able to craft these amazing videos. We'll be like, hey, Matt, we're doing Friday night. Come in and watch this fucking movie I've made. It's insane. <laughs> Only took me two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, what's the impact of that going to be on the music and television and movie industry? Mm. That's going to be huge. Well, how long will it take us to get there? I mean, it's, Next it's, week. Yeah, <laughs> two weeks. No shit. Yeah. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> Looking at your watch. Yeah. And then the watcher. <laughs> that would take me two arm, arm hairs. That's how quick it's going to be. Yeah. It's, it's just developing so rapidly. Mm. I, I'm surprised that there's not already talk of like Netflix or Amazon or whoever, Hulu, saying, yep, our new service, it's only a little while away. We're just still tweaking things. But even if it was just for short films, like, yeah, we're going to give you, it's only going to be a five minute long film. Still, how much fun! This was this was fun, playing with this music thing. It was just fun. Mm. What's it going to give us? The expectation. Oh, that's nothing like it. Oh. How long did it take like, after you've sort of given your descriptions? How long did it take before actually five, sort of... five seconds? Okay, so it it's wasn't like you know, we'll be back in ten nah. minutes with something that we've created. No, nah, it's so. it's super fast. Right. And Bard and GPT four, they're. They're really quick. You, know, you, you, you can type it in or you can just prick, hit your microphone button and you can say it. And again, it takes it five seconds to, to come back with a response. Um, it's, it's really quick. A couple of years ago, I went and bought a bit of electronic stuff because I was thinking I was a, as a hobby, just something to do to kill time. Before I'd started the podcast, I was like, oh, I might try and build like a, an assistant, like a better robot. I thought, yeah, I'll make a, make a little robot and I'll try and put some smarts into it so you have a conversation with it because I thought that would, be a, that would be a cool thing, something that could roll around. Now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, all I would have to do now is build the robot part, like the actual assistant voice thing. You would just... Stick your iPad in there. Yeah, you just yeah. subscribe to some of these things and use an API and talk to it and it would just come back and give you music, movies or, or you know, whatever. Re- rewriting text is amazing. Mm. You give it some text and say, write this in a more engaging manner, or or, or write this in a in a as if it was written by a, a sales manager, and it just comes back, and you're like, that's pretty good. It's got, got, got a real awareness of the different genres of writing. So, yeah, I don't know how it's going to end up, but I think we're going to get there pretty quickly. Or oh, you're saying it's taking you know, every two weeks. There's going to be improvements. So yeah, it will will be quick. Yeah, mm. because because a lot of these AIs, the more they use, the more they learn. Mm. That's it's adaptive software. Yeah. Mm. So they're getting used more. They're learning more, and then I'm pretty sure that they will be using a different type of AI to redesign the next version of this AI. So you're kind of getting into this positive feedback loop where things are just getting... It is going to end up like Terminator, isn't it, where the machines take over the world? Skynet. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, it's a good good chance. Well, already, um, you know, there's a whole heap of... You look at the Ukraine war, all those drones of Mm. different types. This is the first war where there's been just so many 
drones, proliferation. Little ones like DJI Mavics with a hand grenade strapped to the bottom of them to mm. full Bakhtar, whatever they're called, massive big drones. But it, I don't know if they're using them already, but it cannot be far off that some of those mean well, looking assault tank support things, the the BMPs, they're like a tank body, but instead of one big turret, they've got these two cannons on them. They're just lethal. But why would you put any people in them? You just have some dude sitting 100 kilometres away safely just looking through the screen and driving it around. That way no one gets killed on the battlefield. It's going to be, it's gonna be like, like you said, Terminator. It's going to be tanks fighting tanks. Well, if you're not, I suppose, what's the point of, I suppose there is territory that you've got to try and take, isn't there? But, mm. you know, like death and war are in, inevitably you know, linked. linked, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, unless it's just that ends up like being a, a big game of mechanical chess, um, you know, where you're just blowing up each other's machines for, you know, to try and advance your territory. Maybe that's... That would be nice. It would be a lot easier yeah. on everyone, wouldn't it? You know. Maybe that's a weird, unintended consequence of what might happen in war, that in in two years' time, there might be no... People being killed in war, it'll just become like you say. It's just well, where's the territory gain yeah. or loss? Yeah. And you know, oh, that's gone too far. Oh, fuck you, own all our country. Okay, yeah. we give up. Our machines have got to your border, and yeah. you know, but everyone else is is tucked up nicely in uh, safe environments. But again, how does that how does that change things? You know, if you've got a military which normally normally has thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands of people, like the American military must have so many people in it. Now all those frontline people, maybe effectively, you don't have them anymore. All your, you don't have pilots anymore because it's just drones flying around. All your pilots, I guess, are dudes playing computer games with a joystick, yeah. just looking at a camera view, giving that extra human touch to what the AI is already managing. Same with your tank commanders, same with your boats and your submarines. You're like, it's just machines fighting each other. That's a weird concept. Mm. But like you said, in some ways pleasing because it'd be less human life lost yeah did you see um so trump he's back on the campaign trail yeah i keep hearing his name pop up again bless him so i uh i only watched a, a little bit of it but uh i think it was i think it was cnn they put on one of those like a town hall meeting you know they have an audience who can ask questions and they had trump and the presenter and the presenter, it looked like she was, she was actually, she was trying to get him into a sort of a trap or a position. She was saying, so do you think that Ukraine, you know, are the good guys? And do you think that Russia are the bad guys and should lose this war? And Trump said, I just want all these people to stop dying. I thought it was a really good answer. Like he didn't yeah. fall for the trap. And she said, yes, but do you think Russia's are the bad guys? He said, I think that all these people should stop dying. The Ukrainians and the Russians, we should stop killing all these people. And I thought, <laughs> couldn't think of a better no. answer without getting into trouble. You know, and it's exactly that sort of, well, it's not that thing at all. But yeah, here's that same idea. Less mm. people being killed in war is a good thing. Mm. You know, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Thank you for coming on. And it's very timely given that it's um, National, International... International. International Nursing Day. Nurses. Nurses. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Nurses Day yesterday. Yeah. Do you know why that was? No. Um, so it's Florence Nightingale's birthday. Oh, is it? There you go. There you go. Yeah. And Florence Nightingale was a nurse in World War One. Yeah, in the Crimea. In the Crimea. Mm. Oh, relevant around that area again. Mm. 
Um, yes, and so with that kind of leads into you get, coming onto the show. Um, what is, what is your your title? My title. Uh, so the official title is uh, Nurse Specialist Pediatric Surgery Trauma Portfolio, um, which is a bit of a mouthful. Even I can't say that. Um, so my role essentially is to coordinate and act as and be a resource um, for all trauma patients that come in, um, all pediatric trauma patients that come into my hospital. Um, so um, when normally when you would go to hospital, um, you would have one thing wrong with you and you were admitted under the team that specializes in that, in that one thing and that you go to the ward that knows all about that one thing. You know, for example, you know, cardiology, um, sort of oncology, so cancers and, and such forth. But trauma doesn't quite work like that. So you can have broken bones, you mm. can have brain damage, you can have internal organ damage. So which ward do you go to? Do you go to the neurosurgery ward? Do you go to the orthopedic ward? Do you go to the general surgery ward? Um, and so, you know, a lot of these illnesses as well have different ways of managing them. So you have to sort of balance it up. So I basically act as a sort of conduit between all of these different specialties and, you know, make sure the right people are involved at the right time uh, and make, make sure that, um, you know, people progress through the system. It's, um, so essentially I'm like a case manager mm -hmm. and this sort of model of care has been shown to reduce complications, reduce length of stay, and just, you know, help. It stops patients sort of getting, you know, festering because people are going, oh, I thought you were doing that. And, oh, no, yeah. oh, we haven't done this. Oh, that's right, that team's doing that sort of thing. So I'm constantly driving it. So uh, that was my job title, what I've just given you. But I think uh, more of a global term, and the term they're using in Australia as well, is like a trauma nurse specialist or a trauma coordinator. So... Co yeah, coordinator, that's sort of what yeah. it sounds like. So you make sure when people come in that instead of just sitting there and bleeding to death while people scratch their heads as to who should look at them, you kind of got it figured out in terms of, okay, I'll get this person in. I know that you've got bone damage, you've got some internal stuff, which is probably more life-threatening than maybe the bone damage. So we're going to prioritise this team to come in and help you and see you first? Or? Yeah, well, I just, I mean, normally, so, you know, you come in from, you know, let's say a serious car crash, the ambulance crew will bring you into hospital. The, they will contact the hospital ahead of time. Um, and usually, like, the hospital will put out something like a trauma call, which is what you see on TV, you know, sort of, you know, trauma and resource bay for, you know, stat. And that that is a, a good multidisciplinary team with skill, the appropriate skill mix to manage the patient um, initially and to prevent them, you know, you know, any serious complications happening straight away. Um, and then as f like ailments become apparent and more, um, more people would become involved, you know, and so I'll sort of like make sure they are becoming involved. So, you know, if somebody's got, um, you know, we, we, we do some x-rays as part of like our primary survey and you can see a fracture, then I will, you know, normally the, the emergency team would, the emergency department team would sort that out. But if not, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll contact them. I'll let them know about this patient when they come down, you know, they might, um, do something to the patient like put a plaster on a, you know like a, a cast on or decide to operate and then and then it's my job to just make remind them a bit let down the track oh you need to you know do we need to sort out an outpatient's appointment for this kid because they're going home after you fix them several days down the track but you know the other team's been monitoring them so are you like sort of like an interface between the um the medical care 
team, or whatever that term is, and the administration of the patient. So that you know you're making making sure the people actually working on them are there, but then also once they've taken their hands off and taken their gloves off, the patient goes wherever they need to do, and forms are filled out so that they're yep. in the right areas and yeah, yeah. Make sure the right allied health professionals are involved. So physios, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, you know, social workers. Make sure all of their um, injuries are, uh, are lodged on as part of their ACC claim as well. Um, helping them with any insurance stuff that they might need. You know, there's lots that goes on with with trauma. Um, people often think of, uh, you know, when I say I'm a trauma coordinator, a trauma nurse, uh, they're like, oh, that sounds so glamorous. Uh, it, it's, I reckon it sounds scary, trauma nurse. Yeah, um, but there's a lot of um, a lot of paperwork involved, a lot of data as well. So we, uh, you know, we we maintain a, a registry of, of um, of trauma data as well, uh, which is uh, really good for research. Um, and so yeah, that's a, sort of a lot of what I do. I work with injury prevention as well, because um, my ideal day at work is not doing anything because <laughs> yeah. no one's in. And so the best way to do that is to prevent people from getting injured. Um, and injury prevention is is the best way to do that. And you kids, kids must well, kids do hurt themselves all the time for various reasons. I suppose is it is it busy where you work like are there always kids coming in or do you have like a certain level of trauma that only those kids would come to you how does that yeah so the hospital is always busy yeah um in the winter you get respiratory illnesses um you know flus and uh, bronchiolitis and things like that trauma is busier in the summer um you know it's warmer months people are outside they're playing that you know we've got summer holidays people are tra- tra- traveling around the country uh, they're more likely to go to the beach, um, you know, be outside on, you know, motocross bikes or whatever. Mm-hmm. So in, invariably, trauma is more of a summer disease. Um, it's not just here in New Zealand. It's something that I've experienced everywhere else I've worked as well. Um, and you can sort of like just I suppose with some of the more when I say minor traumas, you know, just like what I call it, isolated, simple injuries. So broken arms. Um, so if it's a nice day like today, um, especially after the weather we've had where everyone's been stuck inside, you can sort of anticipate that there'll be a, some playground-related injuries that come in. Yeah. Whereas when, the, and that'll be sort of school-age kids, like middle-age, middle school-age kids, so uh, I suppose six, seven, up until like 12 or so. Um, when the weather's rubbish, um, the, probably the thing I see the most is is fingers shutting doors. Oh. And that's toddlers, Yeah, you know, Um so you know, there is some sort of prediction of patterns that you can do, and you know, as the summer months are approaching, you know, will the um, injury prevention uh, bodies will, you know, do water safety campaigns. They'll do um, you know, driveway related injury prevention campaigns and and stuff that we would anticipate seeing. I mean, and older age groups like maybe because motorbikes, so it's kids who are fifteen to seventeen start doing that as opposed to little kids. So summertime, you see older ages coming in, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the older kids are they're more of a risk takers. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I can still remember being an adolescent. I'm sure you yeah. can as well, Tim. You know, and you know, you you do take risks. And you do as well. dumb you, shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way. Yeah. You just you do dumb shit, um, but. You know, like when you're in that situation, you consider yourself to be invincible, don't yeah. you? Um, I think there's a that that sort of phrase that said, you know, 
youth is wasted on the young yeah. you know if only i could do all the things i could do then but with the knowledge and the experience that i've got now you know well um, someone else i was talking to about this a while ago there's a th- there's a uh, thrill with risk you oh know? totally it's yeah. pleasurable yeah yeah i mean like when you when you talk about adrenaline junkies yeah. it's because there is that little kick you get yeah and you need risk risk is an important part of your your sort of psychological development yeah so you know i think there's sort of needless risk and then there's acceptable risk yeah. you know so acceptable risk is somebody who might get injured on a you know goes on a motocross bike or something like that uh, and they do it every weekend and they know that you know it's a type of it's a type of hobby that they're going to injure themselves yeah. uh, but you know they're doing something fun that's pleasurable and then you get this sort of like unnecessary risk where you get people that don't restrain their children properly in vehicles or you know people that you know drink and then sort of drive i don't want to be sort of too judgmental because there might be other reasons behind this but you sort of you you sit there and go well that that's risks you don't need to take you've probably a bit of thought you could have prevented that whole thing happening yeah yeah, i mean like every injury is preventable yeah like but then we'd be sat yeah. inside in cotton wool doing nothing with our lives yeah yeah you know um but th- there is risk in everything we do you know sort of you walk outside you go to cross the road there's a degree of risk in that but yeah. you sort of you know the risk of getting injured is is minimal if you know the right things to do and you know even just yeah. even sat in a the building there's a risk for the building could yeah. collapse i mean i don't want to turn everyone into sort of paranoid sort of yeah. people that they can't do anything but there's everything has risk in it it's whether it's sort of like high risk low risk and you know whether it's acceptable or how, needless risk how do you how do you find managing that as a parent because you know you've got kids the same age as mine I am the most boring parent on the planet, and this job has made me the most boring person on the planet, Tim. <laughs> no, um, sky, no skydiving weekends for, for you? No, I totally. No, I think, I mean, I see, I see weird stuff. I see yeah. extraordinary stuff, but I see it on a daily basis. So what might be something like a once in a million you know, chance of occurring to someone you know, I see it, those sorts of things. Twice a week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I I think back to when I was a kid and the things I used to do, I grew up on a farm, you know, we used to make these little tunnels through the hay bales. You know, know, and we're we're talking like, uh, they'd be like 10, 15 metres high, you know, and those, I can't know how how much, you know, one of those rectangular um, hay hay bales weighs. Um, But, you know, you've got a good number of those above you. And, you know, one of those, it's like playing Jenga, like life-size Jenga. <laughs> and, you know, it just takes one of those to fall down. And then, you know, and I, I'd be going through it on my own. So that collapses down on me. And I'm in a barn, you know, uh, miles yeah. away from the house. Nobody's going to find me for, for ages. You yeah. Know? And you think, like, you know, back in the olden days, um, like when we were younger, <laughs> like, um, you don't have to use seatbelts in cars. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can remember just turning around, being sat in the back. At least I was sat in the back, and and pretending that the uh, like the the parcel shelf was the console of the Millennium Falcon, and I was flying. And I'd be flying, flying backwards. backwards, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, like so, I'd be, you know, I wouldn't be restrained. I'd yeah. be facing the wrong way, you know. Yeah. But that was okay. That's what we did back in those days, isn't it? Um, but you know, as um, as we learn, as you know 
things become more apparent and there's ways of preventing injury um then these sorts of things get you know put to the side and you know vehicles become safer and you know things like seat belts are, are, are required and you know the appropriate car restraints are required for children you know so it'd be interesting to see what it's going to be like in another sort of 30 or 40 years time as well yeah it's interesting i mean with cars i some people are like ah seat belts shouldn't have them. with me i'm like well you shouldn't have seat belts for sitting on a chair in your home but when you're in a piece of metal going a hundred kilometers an hour and there's other pieces of metal coming a hundred kilometers an hour at you the other direction and the only thing that's separating you is a couple of strips of white paint on the road like maybe some sort of safety is a good idea here you know yeah Def- totally. definitely mm. like being in a car is like it's like driving a car is like having a loaded weapon yeah like the damage you can cause with a car oh, yeah. you know so as I've got older, I've you know I get more of a more of that fear when I'm when I'm just driving around, like you know driving between here and Silverdale and things like that on those roads. There's a couple of corners there where you come around, and you know if a truck is coming the other way and they overcook it a little bit, they've got nowhere to go. They're going to come across the centre line, and every time I approach those corners, I'm just like, okay, just yes. gonna, I'm ready. I'm wary of this, yeah. you know, mm. particularly too because you know um, precious cargo on board. You have got the family on, a couple of kids in the car. It makes you think about those things. Yeah. No, definitely. I remember the first, I don't, don't know what it was like for you, Tim, but uh, when I first brought my children home from the hospital, like I could probably walk faster than I, I drove. Yeah. Like, I was going like, <laughs> yeah. Know, I just, ah, um, don't go yeah. past me. You know, it's just, um, yeah, so no, totally get it. And I think also with my job, um, it's since I had kids as well, it's made it, it certainly has made it harder to start off with, especially when you get, kids that come in at a similar age to your kids and yeah. you can picture yeah. you know um but yeah it's certainly become a bit harder since i've had kids i would actually say you're really well balanced considering like i i think that if i had your role i'd be far more restrictive than you are in terms of what the kids can do like i i, I think you've got a good balance given the fact that like you say Things that I think is a one in a million chance of that screwdriver ending up in through the ear, you're like, shit, we had one of those last week and one a month before that, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, yeah no, I think, I think you've got done doing a good job. Well, thanks, mate. Yeah. What are you trying to say? I was a bit loose as a parent there. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you're not loose as a parent, but you're, you're you know, if I, was, hard. if I was to suggest someone, who do you think would be like the most uptight parent and not let the kids do anything, you'd go, well, well someone who would have daily experience of what goes wrong if they do anything. Mm. But you're not like that, which is good. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, another you, you know thing with the kids, you want them to live their life, you know. Yeah. And uh, one of the best ways to learn is through your own mistakes. Yeah. You know, not that I want, but there's mistakes that are significant. You know. Yeah. Um, you got to find a balance, don't you? Yeah, between totally. Caring for them, giving them your knowledge and awareness, which you've learnt and grown, yeah. and they and experienced, and they haven't got yet sheltering them with the guardrails, but then letting them bounce around like a pinball inside to do those little bits of learning. So hopefully when you take the guardrails away, they're like, yeah, I can kind of see that that would be a bad thing to do, Dad. Yeah, it's mm. a good man. <laughs> yeah. It was like the, the classic is, you know, the kid's rocking on the back of their chair and you go, don't do that, you'll yeah. fall over. Right? And then it happens. <laughs> and then you go, there you go, told you so. <laughs> Guess what? They don't do it after that, yeah. you know, because they've learned. <laughs> well, my, no, my <laughs> kids keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Oh, dear. It's... Yeah. 
How many people are there? How many people are in the Starship in the... Well, the whole Starship Hospital is all kids, isn't it? Is yeah. that right? Uh, yeah, primarily. I mean, uh, so the age cutoff is up to your 15th birthday, but there are some uh, kids there that are there for a bit longer with chronic conditions, so they might take a little bit longer to transition to the adult services, um, you know, or with some of like the uh, cancers, they might come in when they're a kid and it's just easier to finish for the sort of treatment now. But generally it's around about your 15th birthday is, is the cutoff. Um, in other countries, it's a bit older than that. I personally feel like it should be a bit older than that in in, um, in New Zealand as well. Um, Cause you know, when you're over 15, you can still be at school. Um, and sometimes you get those kids in school, you know, somebody has a, you know, bus crash you know and there's kids in school uniforms and some of them go to kids hospital or they should go to the adult hospital and vice versa um it's a tricky one because you know when you're a, a teenager especially sort of like 14 15 year old you're probably doing the same sort of risk-taking behaviors as a 16 and 17 year old um so what's you know yeah what's the right carve because yeah they might have the like an adult's physiology and all intents and purposes look like an adult but mentally they might still be going to bed with a soft toy and stuck their thumb at night and so they're a really sort of tricky group the adolescents yeah is that the reason for separating the kids like having starship hospital instead of just having like a hospital and everyone goes to the hospital oh, I mean, what's the what is sort of the thinking or the logic behind that yeah, I mean, children are, there's a, a common phrase that's used, um, you know, that children are small adults, um, but they're not. Their physiology is different. Um, you know, psycho socially, they're a lot different as well. They require, um, you know, they require parents. They require the ability to play and to express themselves in other ways. Um, there's a completely different way of communicating with kids as there is with adults. You know, generally kids don't have the same sort of comorbidities that adults have as mm -hmm. well. Um, and they need an environment where they can be a child first and foremost. Yeah. Um, and doing that on a sort of, you know, grey, boring adult ward and, you know, having an 80-year-old next year, an 8-year-old yeah. is, is not appropriate. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that, uh, makes, that on, makes sense. On many reasons. Uh, but yeah, it's just knowing where that, that sort of cutoff is. Um, you know, the population's getting older. Um, you know, so there, there could there almost be could be an argument for a, like a, a third group. So we got obviously pediatrics and then adults, but you could have a sort of like a young person's type specialty, which is sort of essentially like I don't know ten to twelve year olds, for example, up until like twenty year olds or yeah. something like that, and just sort of have them. It could be broken down again even further, especially like I said, as the adult population get older and older, and people are living for longer. Do you have do the people that um, like who provide the medical care to the kids? Are they all Starship people? Do they yeah. only work with kids, or will they go to other hospitals and do adults as well? Or yeah, I mean, there's some specialties that would be mixed. Um, I suppose like pediatricians only work with yeah. with children, as you can imagine. But um, so just you know, in relation to the fields that I work most closely with, uh, you know, neurosurgeons. Um, work at Starship also work um, you know other sort of neurosurgical right. centers same with some of the orthopedic doctors as well they they would do like a like one or two days at Starship and then uh, you know make, might do another hospital or have their private rooms they'll you know might specialize in sports related injuries or hip replacements and other things like that so you know they generally have their like 
you know professional fingers in lots of lots of different pies mm-hmm. um most of the other sort of like staff there like the nursing staff and the allied health professionals would just be based there it's not like we would go off and do different things um the way i've been trained in the uk uh is that you specialize before you finish your qualification in sort of what it used to be one of four nursing specialties so adult nursing pediatric nursing mental health or um learning difficulties was the the term so you know um but you so you do sort of like two years of degree just as a a group like a whole group and then in the midway point you'd specialize off so it's different here uh whereas the, the, the training's a lot more broad and generic, the same as Australia as well. Um, so there's pros and cons to that. I've got some restrictions on my license that say I can only work in a like uh, paediatric environment, um, whereas um, Kiwis and Aussies won't necessarily have that. But then I feel like I've probably got a, you know, when I came into nursing, I had a better grounding about child development child milestones how to communicate with family members as well you know had a bit more knowledge about child physiology and how it um how it's affected by disease and injury and illness um so yeah it works sort of both ways really you were saying before like you collect data and that there what what sort of stuff what sort of data do you do you collect and what do you try to do with it yeah, so the, the data is essentially de-identified data that we use, you know, to look at injuries and mechanisms of injury, um, you know, so if, if we want and length, things like length of stay, um, you know, and so if we want to look at how many sort of pancreas injuries we had over a five-year period, we could pull the data and go, okay, what was the, the cause of the injury and go, okay, well, of those 90 patients, you know, 30 were in car crashes you know 10 were uh, sort of um motorbike related and such forth and so yeah. we can use it to um you know for research purposes um and you know to help with injury prevention even help like you know um fine-tune our performance as a hospital as well so we can look at length of stay and see how how we can do things to improve length of stay um yeah yeah do you do work with just like the um Oh, in my industry, you call it like the user experience, but like the experience of the kids, you know, if they've got to come in and go to an MRI machine, which is a fucking big, scary, noisy machine, do they, you know, do, do they work on making that, at, let's say at Starship, a more fun experience than if you were just to go to a normal MRI machine at a normal hospital, uh, you know? Yeah, so I mean, the data I collect wouldn't necessarily help with that, but we do collect a lot of stuff about consumer experience and, you know, any quite good quality project that um, is done by the hospital will have a consumer representative there as well. We're fortunate, we have um, play therapists in hospital as well who are unbelievably fantastic at just making things like an MRI scan as normal as possible because they, yeah. they do a lot of preparatory play with regards to that they, you know they've got books they've got models and so they can talk through it and so these children are prepared before they go in for these things as well so you know the importance of, you know that's another um, really important component of of a, a good pediatric uh hospital is having really good play therapists as well yeah right i wasn't aware of that yeah. as a role yeah so they dress up as like costumes and things and 
Do you, do you have fun on? Do you have fun on the ward with kids? Like kids must be stuck there for a while sometimes. I'm right, laugh with guess, kids on. on yeah, totally. Yeah. That's half the fun of the, of the job. I get to muck around and, yeah. and, and play games with kids and do stupid things, and you know that's my job. Right? <laughs> How is that not cool? <laughs> it's cool, you know. So yeah, I get to play PlayStation with them as well, and uh, you know, like build Lego whenever I've got the time. I think when um, I had more time of this when I was uh, like a, a student nurse. But as you sort of like, you know, like with anything, as you get more senior, you, you come away from the point that initially brought you into that role. Mm. Um, but I still, you know, still do things like that as best as I can. And, you know, still have a laugh with my kids. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, my my mum worked as a coroner's assistant in my hometown mm. for years, 30 years. So working for the coroner, she wouldn't attend a scene of a crime, the coroner would go, mm. but she was his assistant. So she saw all the photographs. She would help him and provide a softer touch sometimes when talking to the family of the bereaved and all that sort of thing. Anyhow, um, I don't think it was mum's retirement. I think it was her, uh, uh, the coroner, Cole's retirement. Anyhow, one or the other. Um, and we're all around at our place having a barbecue. And I said to them, I said, mum, I said, did you guys ever get any like, counseling or you know sort of care with dealing with all of these things that you saw they sort of looked at each other and laughed <laughs> it's like no, no, no that was not that wasn't done then but like i wonder like do you, do you guys get counseling like you must you know obviously not everyone's not every kid's going to make it out of starship alive yeah how do you cope with that do they help you cope with that very much so i mean there is there is sort of counseling as you sort of describe it uh that's available but um, for example, with um, you know, if we have a big trauma come into our emergency department and we manage them, and you know, that that event is finalised, we do something called an ACE review, which is after critical after critical event review. So it's essentially it's a hot debrief, mm -hmm. um, and we basically get everyone in who was involved very quickly on as 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 well as we can put, permit it. I mean, things things with emergency departments is, is they're not limited by the, you know, like wards have like 18 beds, so they don't know they've got 18 patients. Yeah. ED is very much at the, uh, the um, you know, what whatever's coming in is coming in. Mm. And so it can be very busy. And, uh, you know, also pre-hospital providers like St. John, they might not be able to attend because they've got loads of other things to do. But we do try to get everyone together to talk through the events um and you know we'll talk we'll go over the medical facts as best we know and then we talk about how we manage them and that is a really really useful tool to do yeah um we also um do what we call cold debrief and that's not when you necessarily go to the pub and have a few you know cold ones but um it might be another form of debrief as a group a bit later on down the track when um when everyone can get there yeah. you know um and that's a little bit more organized i guess does that help you cope with a traumatic situation where, because you're able to kind of reassure yourself that you've done what you could like you talk about this is what we knew this is the steps we took that's what we were meant to do that was our process maybe the outcome wasn't what we wanted but you know because can i imagine like i would say like how fucking hard must it be if a kid comes in and dies it's horrible yeah it's horrible and um the day it stops being horrible and the yeah. day i don't get even a little bit upset by something like that, I've got to give up the job, mate, because, oh, you know, you can't work in a caring industry if you don't care. Yeah. So 
yeah like i i yeah i've got some you know i say good memories but i've got some very strong memories of, of situations that have not gone right and you know other members have, have been in tears sometimes i've yeah. i've there's been patients that i've shed tears over as well um you know as a as a, a group we're all pretty good at looking after each other as well when we've been in that situation when you see someone's upset you know you sort of you you look after them um if they need to go off you know and you cover their patients while they go off for a bit then so be it um you know having having good um support networks outside of outside of work is, uh, is good as well uh, my wife's fantastic with stuff like that it, it helps that she's not medical yeah. because our conversations aren't driven by just your work yeah yeah totally. there's a lot of people that work in in nursing and medicine that, um you know live together and i'm sure there's some you know, there's lots of benefits of having somebody un that might understand some of the terminology you use but then it's quite nice i find to you know to be able to sound off to my wife and she'll listen and it's fantastic uh you know but then it stops and it's great because i've done and i feel good that it's out and then we just get on with other stuff you know so um no, you need to have multiple different ways of coping with the stress of the job. Uh, you can't rely on one. Do are your are your team like have they have you been together for a while? Have you or do you or do you have a high turnover because of the stress of the job? So there's certain areas that have high turnovers. Uh, so I um, when you say my team, it's um, so the, the trauma team, for example, will will change from day to day. Yeah. Um, you know, people in the more senior roles, there's less turnover there, whereas the more junior members of staff, it's probably the same for lots of professions. You know, the juniors that come in and they rotate round. Yeah. Uh, there's only so so far you can progress before you. They you, need to move out somewhere. Yeah, yeah. and go do something somewhere else. Um, but uh, you know. Um, we're all sort of good at looking after each other. We do lots of simulation as well. So we make sure because of the fact that the team varies so much that, um, you know, that you go into a, to a, a trauma resource and you're in there with another five, six people, but everyone knows what their roles are. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet. So we do so, lots of practice and training for that. So do, do you have, um, do you have like team descriptions, like a like a basketball team? You know, they have their plays. Like this is the sort of thing that's happening. So this is our play. You'll be doing that. I'll be doing this. Very then much after, so. yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, um, so just as a stand, so we'll have like an uh, airway doctor and an airway nurse, and they're the ones that are responsible for you know maintaining um, and optimizing the patient's airway. Uh, there's obviously a team leader, uh, both nursing and medical. Um, we have. Uh, sort of like a procedural team so they're the ones that put drips in or or drains and then uh, another team that might be drawing up drugs um, as well um, but the teams have to be quite fluidic um, you know if there's like for example if there's lots and lots and lots of different drugs that are needed um, but not the, like the patient's airway is fine and they don't need a breathing tube and to be put on a ventilator you know you need to be able to swap out and you know go okay well this, this person needs help rather than going I'm, I'm doing my role you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know people can get tired as well mm -hmm. um, if we're having to do uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation so uh, CPR um, and chest compressions that's very tiring mm -hmm. um, and even though you've got the adrenaline kicking in 
and you feel like you're doing a great job, we try to rotate people um, every couple of minutes just to make sure that the quality is still good. And it's, you know, it's as a team player, you have to sit there and go, yep, that's what, that's what we do. That's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm not going to be a hero here. And I think that's one of the things I like about my role. Everyone thinks, you know, you know, when you're doing trauma and it's all glamorous and stuff, you know, it's, um, it's, it's sort of like hero nursing and medicine but it's not the thing i love most about it is the teamwork and be and, and just being part of a team um and as a collective doing good as a collective you know so how many people say someone comes in they've been in a car accident how many people are working on them um again it would depend on how sick they are okay. um, but by as a standard you would probably uh, you'd have um three or four doctors and three or four nurses so you'd have airway nurse you would have like a circulation nurse um maybe um maybe a procedures nurse and then a, a scribing nurse who's a team leader and doctors would be in similar situations as well so okay so so eight people maybe 10 9 or 10 people you know, it, can, it can get very a lot more than that as well because you know then you have people coming in like um radiographers so they're the ones who are doing the x-rays yeah um you might have a social worker that comes in to be with the family as well um we're a teaching hospital. Um, you don't just wake up with all this knowledge. So there needs to be, you know, if, if it's appropriate to have students, uh, medical students, nursing students. Um, Observing. Yeah. And also there's other family members. We don't, you know, we don't shut the doors and kick people out. Yeah. Um, it's very important that um, that people are there. Yeah. You know, so it can get very busy. Very busy indeed. Um, so then, like, so I'm just trying to imagine scenarios. Like, something happens. There's, I don't know, like a, a white island event, but and four kids come in, or it was a bus crash or something, and four kids come in. How many people like are generally there during the day? How many people would you have to call in if you got four people come at once? Like, well, uh, I mean, generally you'd be able to mobilise a lot of staff from different areas. So if you if you put out like a trauma call, um the hospital manager like nursing manager might be able to go okay i can get you some nurses from here from here and here you know um i have had been called back as well um fortunately i wasn't too far away i, I finished like a late shift i was just driving home i got a phone call and, and it's you know a similar situation uh, the emergency this is when i was working in emergency the department was already packed um you know with long waits um and lots of sick children around um and then there was multiple presentations from the one incident. Uh, he said, Mac, are you, how far away are you? And I was like, oh, you know, five minute drive. He said, we've just had this. Can you come back? It's like, yeah, of course. You know, it was sort of, um, so yeah, it does happen. And we, um, we, we run disaster exercises oh, as yeah. well, um, which are like tabletop exercises. And they're, they're a real challenge because your way of thinking if there's a mass disaster has has to change it, it becomes i suppose mm -hmm. some ways quite quite military-like whereas you're doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people making and, the triage decisions and, and things going, like that this person is an extremist we're not going to be able to save them we yeah. can spend our time on these other two people who are quite sick and make them better and that's yeah. like it's only a tabletop exercise and i'm fortunate enough i've never had to do that in real life but even that is pretty it's hard to to flick out you know when you want to you want to make everyone better or do your best for everyone you've got to find some way to in the moment at least take the emotion out and just make the best overall choice 
Yeah. Yeah. I know people that were involved in the mosque shootings in Christchurch oh. and also in um, in the White Island disaster as well. And, you know, they, they've been trained to do the same sort of thing. But, you know, when it's actually in place, it's a, a different kettle of fish. Oh, it must um, be. Yeah. You and, question yourself for the rest of your life, I imagine. Yeah, totally. I know there's a, you know, there's a lot of really good clinicians that don't practice anymore because they just, that was it for them, you know, which is... It's sad, but again, it's understandable. We're all human beings yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? So, so when, like when someone comes in then, they've suffered a really bad car crash or something, um, is there a, is the first thing just a stabilisation phase? Like, do you, you, you like say that you know you can look and fuck, they're going to have to have a lot of surgery to get better, but mm. are you basically trying to get them to a point where they, they just, they can lay in bed and be sustained for a while is that what yeah, you're so aiming for yeah so, so the initial thing is something called a primary survey and that's a, a, a identifying anything that's going to kill the patient within the next five minutes yeah. all right and it's a you know it's a relatively quick sort of process and then you move on to something called a secondary survey and that's when you're looking for a few more other things you you know that's when like some of the diagnostic imaging might get done right. um and primarily the, the the patient should be packaged up and have everything ready by that point but yeah you are you know that's you know airway breathing circulation is your sort of order of events abc you know like you need to open the airway have a patent airway because if you don't have that you're not going to be able to get the the the, the breathing sorted mm. and the ventilation and the oxygenation for the tissues to fix themselves and then if blood's not going around that yeah. um, ventilation and oxygenation is not going to happen so those are the sort of like you know that that's the uh, initial pathway that we we do and you know there's there's lots of courses that teach that like a structured approach like i've just said you know with the abc and the other letters that follow as well um yeah so you know we, you don't you don't just go oh <laughs> what we're gonna do oh, yeah that looks like it's sore yeah yeah so yeah yeah um i should i just i thought of something it's just gone out of my head but i just while i think of it um have you seen the cpr dogs when you no uh, no no this is a true thing All right a video I was watching the other day of a guy with a like a German Shepherd or um, Malinois or whatever they're called, the ones that jump, amazing jumpers. Those oh, they're doing a, a cardiac compression. Yeah, oh. so he was like he had the dog he was relatively young, training it, getting it to just to stand its front legs on something, and then he was at the stage where the guy's laying on the ground with a chest protector on, and this big full-grown sort of German Shepherd type of thing is bouncing like one two three four five with its front legs on his chest and then going down and breathing like putting its snout over his mouth and nose exhaling jumping okay. back up one two three four five i'd never seen it in my life it was amazing but yeah trained as a cardiac resuscitation dog or whatever you go cpr dog right yeah fantastic it's true <laughs> yeah um i'd be interested to see how how effective the uh the well, expired respirations are, you know, because I you think you gotta press pretty hard. You well, yeah, I don't know. Oh, you have to press really hard. Yeah, yeah. Like I said it's, it's knackering, but yeah, you're like trying to get a seal around someone's mouth. We, we, we... Well, they got they've got those big dog lips. I think it was just yeah. <laughs> but that was that. I mean, the compression that watching that, I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. But yeah, I can kind of imagine you could train a dog to do that. But then it was, it was, it was doing like five compressions, then going down. Breathing on the person's face? Well, I, I presume it was breathing. I don't know what it, else it would have been doing, but trying to push mm. some air in. Because a lot of 
pre-hospital CPR now is driven towards just the cardiac compressions only. Yeah. Um, for several reasons, people aren't are very reluctant to put their mouths over someone else's mouths, especially if you think of, you know the pandemic we've just gone through. Yeah. Um, and he says vomit there as well. And and you know when you are compressing the chest, invariably you are causing lung uh, movement and... as well. So um, it's the compressions that you know most people in a untrained in a pre-hospital environment would be doing. Yeah, uh, a fair play to the dog for. Uh, it... Yeah, look, I I don't know if it was uh, something that the guy had just done as a like a gimmick or if it's an actual thing they are able to achieve and it's useful to have a CPR dog, but. That dog was doing CPR. Definitely knew what I was doing. Yeah. I might train my dog to do it. Yeah, he could get Frankie to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is what is the with with CPR? Um, what is it like every second? That's uh, hard. So, so the compressions bit. Yeah, it's um. So essentially, the beat rate is a hundred beats per minute. Oh, around yeah. about. So um, there's a couple of songs. That, slower, sort of your slower techno speed. Well, so the songs that you're supposed to have yeah. going through your head, are, um, you know, for the optimists out there, it says um, staying alive. <laughs> you know? um, for the pessimists is another one bites the dust. <laughs> so that, that's, uh, I think one's slightly faster than the other. Um, but invariably, those are the sort of like songs. That, Depends you know, on if you like the patient or not. Yeah. Another one bites the dust <laughs> yeah and it's you've got to go you know you've got to go, go a good sort of like you know good depth on the chest wall as well yeah i've heard that like the people you might end up with some sore sternum or cracked ribs or oh, something yeah, yeah. after if it's yeah. done properly to yeah. get the heart to actually pump otherwise yeah. you're not going hard enough yeah yeah but what about for a little kid like a toddler two or three years old what are you doing two fingers and just yep yep two yep. fingers or um you know, if it's a baby, you can put your arms around the chest and, you know, hold like so the rib cage is in right there and, yeah. and just down that way as well. Yeah. Have a bit better control that way as well. But that's easier to do if there's two people doing it. So, what about kids our age? Like, yeah, you know, eight, nine, ten. Kids, how... kids our age. Yeah. So, our, kid, our kids' age. It's <laughs> yeah. called grown ups. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. So, you could probably just use like, the heel of one hand. You wouldn't necessarily oh, yeah. have to do those sort of the two. Yeah. Um, what, uh, or two questions, I guess. Yeah. What's the most common thing the kids come into the hospital for broken arms? Uh, from a trauma point of view, uh, yeah. Broken arms, uh, the, yeah. the sort of elbow. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Falling off things, falling off swings. Mon and yeah. Things. Monkey bars. Monkey bars. So yeah, that's, and I think it's because people are climbing over the top of like on the top of them because yeah. when you're swinging from a monkey bar, You'd usually land feet first. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? If yeah. you land on your shoulder or on your back, you know, if you slip. But, yeah. um, you know, people, like one of one of our re reactions is if you fall, is you, you put your arm mm. out like that. Yeah. And so, you know, the force goes up and into the, you know, if the arm's flexed, it goes into the, you know, goes into the elbow and, and causes a fracture. But yeah, I suppose that would be, um, so yeah, broken arms are probably the most common. I said like fingers shutting doors is, a, is a, another one. So, uh, but going back to the broken arms, um, monkey bars, trampolines. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, falling off bikes, skateboards. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to do. Like, I don't, like, Willa has broken her arm twice. Can, I can't remember how she did it the second time. But the first time, oh, no, that's what I remember. I remember. <laughs> the first time, they were just in the hallway and they'd taken 
Locke's mattress off his bed and had turned it on its side and had stuck it across the hallway. Like it was, it was, a, it was a wall, a new wall between their two bedroom doors. And they were just climbing across the mattress and she fell off the mattress, like right. a fall of this far and broke her arm. Yeah. And then the other time, she, you know, in a doorway, you can climb like Spider-Man. You put yeah. your hands in your yeah. feet and you can it's climb up in the doorway. Yeah. And a friend walked underneath and she looked down and either she bumped her foot or she lost the balance and then broke her arm again. Is it the same arm? I think it was the same arm. The first time, though, it was, I don't know what the term is, it was just a fracture. Looking at the x-ray, you couldn't even tell it was broken, but it had it had fractured. Buckle? The, did it buckle fracture? Oh, I don't think it was buckle, but it was it, it was broken. She got a cast, yeah. but you know, it didn't look like it. The second one, like you can see it. Her, her arm was here, her wrist and hand was here. Like it was both bones had just let go completely the second mm. time. Yeah, that's always uh, awful to see. Fuck yeah, yeah. that was. Yeah. I think that one was right at the start of l- lockdown. I think it was, and we had some. We had some people over for a barbecue or something. And it's just like, oh, my God. That would have been fun going to the hospital during lockdown. Renee took a yeah. – I dressed them up in suits. I was like – because this was right back at the start. Like, we're like, we don't know how bad this is, you know. Had it happened now, I'd have been like, just go to hospital. But then I was like, look, you need to put on you need to put on shower caps. You need to put on masks, goggles, <laughs> plastic booties. This could be a virus. It's probably at the hospital. Don't get sick. Yeah, it's funny because um, – you know, when during during all our lockdowns, I was um, you know, there's less trauma coming in, so I ended yeah. up doing some extra work. You know, getting deployed down to the emergency department, so sort of front line. Um, I actually felt safer in emergency than I did going to the supermarket. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think because I've got all the right gear there as well, oh, I've got yeah. the ability to test people, <laughs> strangers. Yeah. You know, um, whereas in the supermarkets, you just you have no idea who's who's, who's you know, possibly positive and is still walking around touching everything as well. So you, when you say you go down to the emergency ward, what was that? Is that not part of the Starship? Is that just yeah. general hospital emergency no, so, ward? No, the, the emergency department at Starship. Oh, right. So, oh, so what's, well, what's the difference between emergency and trauma then? Okay, so well, the emergency department is where you go. If you've got really bad stomach pains, you'd it's go front, to the it's front. It's front line for the hospital. It's the front door. Right. You know, so trauma goes there. Yeah. Medical, um, you know, ailments like diseases go there. You know, that's where you would go with coughs and colds and stuff, uh, rashes. Yeah. Um, you know, that's where you go. So trauma is is everything, you know, everything injury, you know. So you get admitted with trauma. So you'll come into the emergency department with trauma, you'll get packaged up and then you'll get sent to the intensive care or the ward or hopefully home. But that's trauma. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, um, what's it like in terms of, yeah, let's just like workload. Would you recommend the job to someone else to go and to, to do it? Yeah. Look, I, I love my job. Um, I'm not going to go into too much stuff about pay or anything like that um it's you know there's other jobs which are better paying out there but i suppose it depends what your priority is in life um i i went into it i was good at science um i like working with kids um you know going back to our conversation before about all the ai stuff will never be replaced yeah not in our lifetime anyway as far as i'm concerned um 
I, yeah, I really enjoy nursing. It's so rewarding. It really is. Um, you know, seeing, seeing like, it's not nice seeing kids come in, but to see them go home after them being in such a bad way mm. and knowing that you've contributed. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, like when you were telling that story about how you'd finished a long shift and then you got a call, can you come back? And you're like, yeah, sure. Like I can imagine that your work is one of those jobs where you do feel like you you, you get something out of the work. You know, it's mm. not like I'm mean, just working in an office doing something to get a, an, an income. With your job, it's like, well, there's some real fucking excitement here. <laughs> like things are on the line. And if we do our job well, we've really helped someone, which is one of those things they know that if you are helping someone else that actually gives you purpose and a sort of a sense of meaning so if you're doing that in your job yeah it's a good thing yeah like the, i mean there are some people that like the ex excitement and i sort of get that as well it's it's you know it's very much a adrenaline form of, of nursing trauma nursing and emergency nursing um and i probably was a little bit like that you know when i was younger but now i think that the first thought that goes through my head is there's someone on the end of this yeah of course you know? yeah um i've got a, a sticker on the back of my work phone it says uh i love trauma it's not like i want you to get hurt i just want to be there when you are yeah uh, in a you know you know in a, in, a, in a way of going i just want to help you through this yeah, yeah you know yeah. um so yeah i think you know when you get called back you, you know it's not like great but you you know you know when you work in that sort of unpredictable environment it's it's part of a but it feels like the sort of thing that if you got called back your immediate response would be yeah like mm. yeah i'm coming back to help yeah you know whereas some lines of work oh you get called back because the client's done something stupid and you've got to spend heaps of time working on a spreadsheet again you'd be like oh fuck off yeah i'm not doing it. yeah, yeah no, totally. <laughs> and also you know the people that are calling you back are your colleagues they're the people yeah. that that you have these really sort of like high emotional moments with anyway you yeah. know and you you know what it's like when you're in that situation and you want to be able to help them yeah as well so it's not just helping the, the, the patients and their families it's helping your, your your colleagues and to be able to go oh you know this is going to be bad let's work together to get through this you know is there is there a private sector for nursing like are there private hospitals oh yeah very much so but they're um I mean, there's not many pediatric ones, um, and usually the the private healthcare setting is more, uh, and the, the the hospitals are more based for um, like elective procedures or semi-urgent procedures. Right. Um, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily have a like a, a private emergency department in a private hospital sort of thing. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's another thing I I, I quite like about working in the public sector as well it's you know it's not about how you know sort of how big your you know um, your bank balance is or, or how comprehensive your health insurance is you know um we you're injured you're sick we will do what we can regardless of who you are or you know what yeah. income stream you're on to get you better oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? no I, I wasn't coming from that angle i was actually coming from the other way whereas like i think nursing and being able to provide care to people is undervalued and you know like i like like teaching one of the i think one of the most important things that you can invest in is like the education of your children whether they're yours or just the the children of the country in general so that 
hopefully by the time they grow up, they're well educated, they're capable of doing things and making good decisions. Same with healthcare. Like, you know, you want the best healthcare you can get for people. Um, and that's why I was wondering about the, the private sector, because I, yeah, I, I just feel like this is an outsider, but I hear all the time that nurses are leaving they're not they're not paid enough they're working all these long hours and things like that yeah that's something that i think ideally would be addressed somehow because that's an area you want people to be staying and not leaving and not being overworked so that they're not tired and making decisions and all these Mm. sort of things yeah Yeah, i think having a mixture of of both public and private is probably the most is from a i suppose pay conditions point of view um, and staffing levels is probably the, the best way for, you know, like without taking my own sort of personal things about it, it shouldn't matter who, you know, who comes in, well, I'll look after them as best as I can. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you are going to sort of provide better pay for nurses or, it's, you know, having having a, a degree of private healthcare income to that health stream is, is quite good. I think Australia's got quite a good model. Um, and of the three countries I've worked in, I felt like, you know as a as a you know um as a worker towards the the lower end of the the healthcare spectrum you know because i was a clinical nurse um i felt like there was more money in that healthcare system and the conditions were probably slightly better is that australia yeah versus most other places i've worked and that was in private sector or public sector because you you still have that, that sort of private you know in people in australia are more encouraged to have private health insurance as mm-hmm. well so there's you know whereas other countries don't always have it's not obligatory but i think in australia you get taxed more if you don't have private health care yeah. don't you yeah so, you, do, you do you know so they generate more money that way and you know having i remember having this is just you know my own personal experiences here but you know having my own private healthcare in, in Australia, you get sort of like, you might get a discount at a sports shop as well as getting you sort of like money off massages and stuff like that. So you look at things like that and you go, okay, well, I'll go and get a massage or, yeah. you know, I'll go and buy some new trainers and go running. So by having those sort of components tied in, it, it, it's got some incentives, the right incentives for health and yeah, healthcare. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, fixing you, but it's also, yeah. you know, sort of like health promotion as well. And, and yeah. Yeah, it's like it's, it's like anything. I guess anything that's kind of free market versus public. If you have private, if you're having private hospitals, there'll be some level of competition, which can drive some good practices. You know, like it, 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 I'm not. I don't know what the examples would be because I'm not in the industry, but could also drive some some bad incentives as as well because there's competition in, in there. But then with you know, if you if you've just got public sector. And there is no competition and drive to get better, then that's that's a challenge too, because you kind of want, like you were saying before, you guys collect data so you can look at things and try to reduce stay times or whatever yeah, you called it. Yeah, you know, because every yeah. every every night in bed is is uh, in hospital is it costs money. Yeah, you know, um, intensive care unit even more so. Yeah, you know, um, but no, I mean, New Zealand's got a pretty good healthcare system, and the um, ACC is a fantastic you know component of that. Um, yeah. You know, having having all that money come in from the um, from the, from them as well is is fantastic. So we were talking we're talking about trauma yeah. a, a lot, um, but at Starship, 
do you get kids coming in who are like 15 and 16 and are in because of like bad health, like they're, they're obese or something? They're just, they're, yep. your diet's no good and things like that. Yep. And they have other sort of comorbidities as well. You know, they don't have good living conditions. And so, you know, diabetes is, um, you know, when you talk about lifestyle as well, um, you know, diabetes is something that's becoming more prevalent yeah. as well. Um, respiratory illnesses, like I said, in winter become you know sort of really bad you know like if, if people don't have adequate heating or if there's um you know large families in small houses you know there's sort of like really good um ingredients to spread disease really yeah you know um yeah so and di like diabetes for a 15 year old kid what does that what does that mean what what does that do to the body or what what's kind of happening to a kid or why are they coming in? What's actually causing them to come in? Are they struggling to breathe? Are they dying from their kidneys being sick or like? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not a diabetic nurse specialist, no. uh, um, but in, invariably they'll come in when, when they've got, um, you know, from my experience of working in ED, that, that, that um, they've got excessive thirst and yet, and yet they're peeing loads as well. And that's usually the first sort of signs. And, you know, that's one of those diseases that was, you know, it isn't curable. It stays with you for life. Um, you have to manage your diet. You have to um, monitor your blood sugar levels. You have to administer insulin. And I think for the teenage age group as well, um, you know, when there's a lot of um, awareness about, you know, body image as well, um, you know, sometimes, you know, it's a big, Big challenge for them. Socially, it's uh, not a, it's uh, like a, a retarding factor. You're not able to go out and play and enjoy sports and hang out as much. Yeah. I suppose you can't eat what you want to, and you know, so yeah. if your friends are going to fast food joints. You've got to monitor what you have, and you know, then you've got to do your blood sugars, and that's not nice. You give yourself insulin, and you know, if you don't rotate the site, you give you insulin. You get you know, your skin gets a little bit lumpy, and so you sort of, you know, mm. you become conscious of those sorts of things. So. Yeah. But I said I'm not a, a diabetic nurse specialist. But. Yeah, yeah. One thing, I mean, yeah, like public public healthcare is an interesting topic at all levels. But I've always wondered that what what I don't think I've ever seen in Australia, really, or in New Zealand, at least that I can remember. Maybe I just don't remember it. Have been like good public campaigns about just diet. You know, like just generally, like if it's a publicly funded healthcare system and all that, like the just good public messaging about diet i would have i would have thought that would be something that we would do in the west where we everyone australia new zealand america the uk everyone's struggling with obesity with in the population yeah yeah i, th I thought we would have seen more than that do you i mean you do see some like you know sort of like you see your adverts about having five a day you know like fruit and veg and things i think what makes it hard though is how cheap fast food is yeah, you know it's cheaper to go and you know go to your local drive-thru yeah. than it is to go and get fresh fruit and veg. Yeah, it shouldn't be the other way around. Yeah, I know. know. The, the, there's some troubles with the the model there. Yeah. The other day I heard that, and this maybe this is globally, maybe it's just America. McDonald's fries don't sue me, McDonald's. I saw someone say this. Um, McDonald's fries they choose a particular type of potato. And the reason they choose that particular type of potato is that it grows, it's a long potato. And they want that potato 
because it means they can create long French fries. And they want long French fries because that little red cup thing, they stand up and they look like a nice floret of appealing fries. Mm. Short ones don't. doesn't look like you're getting a good deal. So they grow this particular red russet. I don't know what it's called, potato. But this particular potato, which grows red like this, tends to get this like a brown kind of line growing up through it, which means that if they see that in your crop, they're like, no, nah, we're not buying yours. We're going to go get other ones. So this incentivizes the farmers to remove, I think it might be an aphid that causes it. So they have to put on a particular type of pesticide to kill the aphid to grow these potatoes. This pesticide apparently is so dangerous that when the farmers have sprayed it, they won't go into their fields for five days afterwards after it's been sprayed to let it settle down. And when they harvest the potatoes, they have to put them into these big, effectively hermetically sealed sheds to rest for a period of time to gas out all of the toxins. <laughs> so you've got this really quite toxic, terrible farming process mm. because the major fast food supplier on the planet wants pretty looking chips. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the way like an incentive drives this, um, you know. Why do you guys have those big funny sheds with fans on your property? <laughs> because these chips need to look this tall. Yeah. What? Weird. I know. Consequences. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Are you um are you are you drumming and gigging much at the moment? Not so much in the winter. Um played the other night. But yeah, normally I'm busy uh, doing that in the summer. Is that so, a rooftop bar thing? Like rooftop bars are open more in the summer? It was actually on Thursday a rooftop, rooftop bar, but they uh, shut the uh, external access because uh-huh. you know, that was the last day of our glorious weather we had before the sun came out. Um, yeah, so that was, it was all right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you working with anyone in particular or just looking for gigs wherever? No, I just, I mean, I primarily work with DJs. Um, I would like to get back into doing band work at some point in time. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll sort of see how it goes. Yeah, it, you know, it, will, it sort of all changes around. There might be you know a couple of you know a couple of months. Some might, be, might actually find a band and not be doing anything with DJs. So yeah, yeah. DJs would be fun though, wouldn't it? Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's easier uh, because you're already playing along to a, a pre-recorded track, um, and you're just adding your extra interpretation on that. Um, but then you don't know what tracks the DJ is going to play. Um, they might go completely left field and play music that doesn't really fit with you know the instruments I have. Do they play stuff that's already got the instruments you've got? And you're like, what yeah, the fuck t- am I doing for this track? Yeah, totally. But then you just move on to something else. You know, like if there's congas in a, in a so track. You pull the nose flute out. And- <laughs> not, no. <laughs> no. Deal with that, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, but I might pull out shakers or something like that. Or sometimes, you know, if it's got congas in, I might sit bongos in there, you know, and just make it more of a percussive track. Uh, but obviously not change you know change your rhythm but then sometimes if there's a, a quite simple groove in there that i can mirror sometimes it's nice to actually play that and pull it out of a track as well you yeah. know and make it sort of more prominent yeah so you know it varies yeah mm. and playing with a band what's the good thing about that why well you're playing you're sort of creating all of the music yourself as a group um again back to to teamwork you know um a lot more light and shade working with bands as well. Um, DJs, it's pretty much, you know, the type of music I play, it's funky house music. Um, you, you know, it's all same time signature. 
uh, seen tempo. Um, Going pretty hard to keep yeah, up pretty, with the sound system. Yeah, and I, get, yeah. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, that's not a huge problem, but sometimes it's nice to just do sort of like more acoustic numbers, you know, softer yeah. numbers, as well as the hard driving, dancey well, numbers. Well, yeah, and be able to have the control to say, well, actually, this track is going to start with me doing this, and that's yeah. all there is. There isn't a, 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 some other Yeah. I also track. find, like, with... with because a lot of the DJs don't play like a like traditional songs, you know, that haven't, you know, do the sort of like intro, verse, chorus, verse with a bridge and then, you know, another verse, chorus or whatever. Um, whereas doing that in bands and and I feel like you, you've got more scope to move around different instruments. So yeah. I, I might be playing, you know, shakers in the verse and then congas in, in the chorus, um, pull something else out for the bridge, um, you know, whereas... It, with the house tracks is usually like for this song i'm going to play this instrument you know for this song or this track i'll play this instrument you know um so yeah it varies it you know there's sort of different skills involved with different types of you know of playing music i suppose do you ever drum with a traditional kit i i have done um but i haven't done it for a long time so my muscle memory is probably a little bit um absent with regards to that, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we've got I've got a traditional kit at home, like standard. Have you? Yeah, I'm just gonna grab a drink. Hang on, keep going. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Now that's um. That's more for the kids to play on, really. Very good. What else has been going on? Oh, it doesn't sound right. There we go. Well, you know, normal life stuff. Yeah. Like that, you know. I mean, don't do bathroom renovations, but you don't really need to hear about that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yeah, life's good. You've been down to the recycling centre, you were telling me, to get some bathroom equipment. Well, it's always good to, to you know, recycle and repurpose stuff. And, you know, that place is just amazing because you get... It's a bit, in some ways, like IKEA. Hillensville Recycling Centre. Yeah, like you go in there with this, like, mindset that you're going to get... Oh, I mean, I, I used to go to like, Ikea to go, right, okay, we're going to get placemats, right? And I come out with a new sofa and, you yeah. know, uh, a rug and um, yeah. something for stirring pasta, which I haven't got, but <laughs> realised I actually really need. Didn't know this tool existed, <laughs> yeah, but now I've got one. <laughs> and a picture frame. Yeah. Um, and it, the recycling centre is a bit like that as well, because you go down and go, right, okay, I need to go and get, you know, like a, a light. And then you come out with like a drum kit and a hockey stick and a bike that's got a warped wheel, but you know you can use it for something. Yeah. I go in there with this joke with Trina who runs the place that she'll give me a basket. I'm allowed to walk around and fill it up and then she'll take the basket off me before I go. <laughs> because I spent so much time in that place. How does that work for oversized items like doors yeah. and table and furniture? Oh, man. Before they were in the place they're in now, they were just to the left of it. They were over there. The original recycling centre okay. was over there. And that was before Trina took it over. She was just starting to work there, I think, then. And we just turned up here, and I was going there, like, every weekend. Honestly, in the first, like, six months that we were in town, when we moved to town, the only people I knew were the people who worked at the recycling centre because <laughs> the only people I regularly saw. Yeah. And then um, after a while, Trina came to me one day. She manages the place now. And she said, would you like to be on the board of the the Helensville Recy Community Recycling Centre. They've got a board. They've got a board. They've got a, yeah. a recyclable board. Yeah. 
party board. Uh, yeah, they asked me because I was there often. I was like, yeah, sure. So I did it for a year or so, and then I got too busy with work and other things. I couldn't continue doing it. But um, it's good. And I went down there just recently. They've started their shed, like where they are oh, now. I was going to say, they, behind where all the sort of like glass and wooden things are, they're building something, aren't they? They're building a massive shed. Um, it's going to – it will be huge, and they've got really good plans for what they're going to do down there. Um so the current building and shed is going to become kind of storage and some sort of equipment. And then they're going to do, put teaching facilities, like area down there where they can try and help some of the local community, um, like the um, Craigwell House, I think, for people intellectually handicapped, yeah. that sort of thing. I think that's where they are. Um, try and take some of the materials that they've got coming in there, get those some of those people in to try and work with them, to produce some items, to make some cash for them, get them feeling like part of the community. Um, do some teaching around recycling and that sort of thing. Yeah, get mm. kids in. Um, yeah, I think it'll be really good once it's done. I don't think I'll put a whole heap of trees and things in I there. think it's good to have some form of education about recycling because, you know, like, you know, you watch these shows about, you know, things that go into recycling that never get recycled, you know, mm. or, you know, even like if it's not rinsed, it doesn't get recycled. And it's just, yeah. you know, like if I people knew that, but I don't. I don't think the current recycling program is what we think it is. Yeah. Like I, I think we think, oh, we put our recycling out and it all gets separated out. And like, mm. I don't know. I've heard some stories that you know some of the trucks that pick it up go over to landfill. And maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I, know, I just heard some stories. And like you say, oh, I don't know. If there's there's just too much paper in that just throw it out yeah. it's like really you think they should just go if they're going to recycle it just fucking they should take it full of anything and just sort it out yeah know? i know in the uk they're very specific about what goes in what recycling bins and they've got quite stringent rules about it which i think makes sense a little bit because at least then you know exactly what you're doing whereas i think with our system it's just like put everything in and like you don't even know if like are the bottles supposed to have the tops on them or not and do you rinse them is it you know i mean I, I personally feel like you should i don't think like you know having a milk bottle that's sort of got a small amount left in it you know when somebody comes to sort that out several weeks down the, la the line and undo the lid it's going to stink you don't, nice, don't want to take it? the fun out of their week <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah. So, so the other thing, though, is with, and I don't, I haven't researched this, so I'd be interested to know. But you can take all that rubbish, and you can burn it, and burn it, and because everything's got a heat capacity, and like if food, when the water's out of all that, everything that goes into rubbish, plastic, all that stuff will burn. You might end up with some gunk at the bottom, and you could probably get some nasty toxic gases coming off. But if you burn it, trap the gases with some sort of filter, filter so it's not going into the atmosphere and put the gunk aside, then you've just turned that into energy. Like if you're heating water and gas and energy. Mm. I actually wonder, you know, what the net positive is if there's a benefit to doing that versus the energy to take, say, the cardboard, separate all the cardboard out, send it back into a process to clean it up, to smash it down to fibres again, to put it back together. What's energy-wise, what's yeah. better? Are you actually better to just go and burn it and generate electricity? I, I don't know, but it's an yeah. interesting question. I'd like to, I'd like to know the, the answer. No, to that. Fair enough. But also, like, how, how many sort of like cubic tons of rubbish would you need to burn to get sort of like one kilojoule of energy? I don't you know. It's sort of, this is the, this is the question. Like, I don't, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. But I, 
I imagine that there's a lot of energy going out in the rubbish bins that you're going to burn. Mm. Plastics, cardboard. I mean, obviously metals. I guess the metals would just go through a process. They'd melt and drop out the bottom and you'd probably retrieve a, a lump of metals. Um, maybe get it high enough, they start to oxidise. I don't know. But um, organic waste, once that's hot or dry, mm. you know, it'll, it will burn as well. There's the guy who invented the... Um, Remember the Segway? Yeah. That machine with two wheels yep. would balance, self-balancing. Steve Carnan, or no, Carvin, Carnan, Kennan, Keenan, don't know. Um, he, I believe, also invented a little small-sized power unit, which is, it'll burn anything. And it's exactly that. And I think his plan was for developing nations, like a little a growing town in Africa or something, you put one of these in the town and all the waste goes to it and it just burns it and produces electricity. And so you're using that waste to generate electricity. And I know everyone's like, oh, you're just burning waste. It's horrible. I was like, well, I don't necessarily think it is horrible. If land, you Surely it's, in some ways it's better than landfill. That's the kind of thing I'm yeah, thinking. Is yeah. it better than going to landfill? Because it still produces all the gases. Yeah. You know. But then again, this is another thing too. So my hometown, for years and years and years, there was a tip out of town. Right. And as a kid, I used to love going to the tip with Dad. Just so much fun. I can still remember the smell. It's like balsamic vinegar. Like, <laughs> is this where your uh, your uh, love for the recycling centres yeah, is coming? Yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. Go there and come back with more than we took. Yeah. But but I did. I'd love it. Yeah, you, know, you just you just scrounge around all of this stuff, broken bikes and bits and pieces of parts and things, and try not to cut yourself on glass. Um, but over years, that landfill tip. Now, I think they're taking methane off it. Like right. it's, yeah, they're actually capturing methane out of it. I, I believe so, anyhow. Yeah, I suppose, you know, if it wasn't a outdoor environment and they could actually, you know, regulate the, um, the gas emissions, you know, then... You I, know, think they just put big I think they just put yeah. big plastic tarps over the area oh, okay. where the landfill was. They just put big plastic tarps over no, and let... Can't be uh, airtight, though. No, but they don't have to be airtight. They're just... Uh, you know, let, let's say this is let's say this is your, the area that you used as your landfill. The tarp just goes a bit further around it, and it and it raises up, and they just capture it. There's, all the methane just collects, and they suck it out and tank it. Or they, I don't think they burn it on site to generate electricity. But yeah, like I, I just wonder, could you not shrink that concept down to your house? So all of your rubbish and waste goes into a little box next to the sink, and what it actually does is burns it, and that heats up your hot water and produces electricity for your lights and your yeah. heating and that'd whatever. Be awesome, wouldn't it? Well, that'd be cool. A yeah, kind of self-sufficient house. Yeah, I think that's a really. I don't know if you can do it, but I think that's a really cool idea. And then we can get your your AI systems involved, so they know exactly how hot you want things and where you want. Yeah. The, you know, if, if you know it's winter, that so you need more more heat to the um, to the underfloor heating. Yeah. As opposed to your hot water. Yeah. You still want hot water. But, well, you turn the top yeah. water up by two degrees in yeah. the wintertime because it feels nicer or yeah. whatever. And, you know, you know, the AI system can then, you know, use that energy to power your TV as well. Yeah. 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 Solar powered. Just It just seems like, like you say, if the recycling process isn't exactly what we think it is, and a lot of that stuff just ends up in landfill anyhow... There must be a better way to do that. It's like it's kind of got to be inefficient to go, oh, we're going to spend 30 years of dumping landfill there. And then when we think it's right, we'll put a tarp on it and we'll try and capture the methane out of it versus let's just burn it in a controlled environment right here and 
maximize the energy we get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Should invent that. I'm sure it's been invented. AI will invent it. Yeah. For sure. That was fun. Cool. Yeah. Did you have fun? Of course, mate. I always have fun chatting to you. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, I don't know what time it is. What it been an hour and a half? What time did we start? Twelve. Yeah. So it's one thirty, I guess. Um, we started at two. Is we started at two. So you're right. Out? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It started at we two. Got back in time. We have. <laughs> We've got younger. Ne- negative thirty minutes. Oh, shit. Do you know what I saw yesterday? What? A picture of a guy who was five foot three. Right. Had a leg extension operation on his shin bones. He's five foot nine. That must look quite disproportionate. No. Oddly enough, it's like his upper body, when you kind of look at his smaller picture, you're like, oh, yeah, his upper body uh, looks right, so bigger than his legs. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, his short legs. And he went from five three to five nine. And they showed rough how the process works. Does not look pretty. Basically, they cut the top of your knee open. Yeah. They bore down through your knee into the main shin bone. And I wasn't listening. I wasn't, sorry, I wasn't listening. I was just watching it. I got the impression they dropped down like three metal cylinders go down into the bone marrow, I guess where the tube is, and they maybe use a magnet on the front of the leg to pull it down. And that pulls the bone down. And then I guess you just let it take six weeks in traction maybe, and it knits. And then they've added... This much. How old is this person? He looked like he was 40, 50 year old. Yeah, Bones yeah. don't really grow that much right then. Maybe they're using stem cells and yeah. steroids. Do you know do you know, you know the phrase orthopedics, which obviously relates to the medicine of, of bones? Bones. You, you know where it comes from? No. It's straightening children is what it means. Straightening children? Yeah. Really? Well, yeah. from having rickets? Probably historically, but yeah, if you think pedic is, you know, yeah. pediatrician, so mm. ortho, you know, I remember watching a video of a orthopedic surgeon. Honestly, he looked like a demon. He, his big round face. He had these like goggles on with almost like swimming goggles. And he was just hacking through someone's leg. Like it was a real operation. He was a real surgeon, but they were they were talking to him in his normal business suit, blah, blah, blah. But then they showed some of him working. And when you see an orthopedic surgeon working, it's not pretty work. You know? no, no. It's sweaty, grinding yeah. through bones. It's a, it's a very practical... Uh, like medical subspecial, surgical subspecialty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Like imagine doing an amputation. Mm. Oh, you do. I guess you've probably seen amputations. But yeah. Not fun. No. 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 It's uh. It's funny you say that. How do you do your job? You know, being a nurse, but I'm not sure I could do things like that. You know, I couldn't. You know, amputate someone's leg. You know. Could I amputate someone's leg? Yeah, I could. I reckon I could amputate your leg. Could you? If I needed to. Yeah. Like, say your foot's stuck in a drain, the water's rising, you're going to drown unless we cut your foot off. Yeah. I go, buddy, I love you. You can thank me later. Give me the hacksaw. Make sure we cut the right leg off. <laughs> Which leg? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I could uh, do yeah, that. Yeah. I don't never had to do it. But yeah. Imagine I would in that situation. Yeah, that's an extreme situation, but just, you know. Just, yeah. Yeah. 
like I'm not I, I, saying that I would like to amputate your leg if you've got nothing on later on. I could like just take <laughs> one of your feet off. That's yeah. not where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, I, I, I like both my trainers being you know, you know <laughs> just be going to shop and, and buying one one trainer every you know every time I need to get some. Yeah, I saw some video of it was in Vietnam of uh, like a kind of grizzled. I don't know what he was, sergeant, someone. He was older. He was probably 40, so, yeah, he was older. And, I don't know, he'd taken a grenade or a mine or something to the ankle, and he's on the hospital bed, and I don't know how much sedation he'd been given because he sounded fairly with it, but I think they were talking about, they were getting to the point of thinking about having to amputate his foot, but I could hear him talking them out of it. He's like, no, I can feel that. Oh, that's pain. That's good ankle pain. I can feel that pain. Like, you're not taking my fucking foot off. <laughs> you know? Shit like that, man. Tough. Yeah. Have you seen some of the video of the... I, this blows my mind. Like, I love the fact that Twitter is free speech. Like, it, I really do. I love that you can kind of say anything on there. But still... Just the everyday – well, obviously I follow these channels because I'm interested in the war, but the everyday access to just like graphic footage of people being killed, like the dudes who are asleep in a foxhole and a little drone flies over and just drops a grenade onto them. Yeah. Like, that's fucking callous. Yeah. You know, that's horrible. I don't care if they're Russian, Ukrainian or Lithuanian. That's yeah, just horrible. Yeah. yeah. And um, and the fact that that's videoed as well is even you know, and the morbid, more morbid. The mother, the like the people who post some of them, are just not in a good way. You know, like their their little comments, comments are like "bye bye baby Russians." It's like, dude, there's something wrong with you if you're deriving pleasure well, out of this. Don't even, like, I don't know. The people that are commenting on, you know, they probably don't even really tie into the fact that it's real yeah. you know it's just like something they're seeing on their tv it's yep. like but there's that's a person that's got friends, friends parents family. they like certain things they don't like other things you know they on the weekends they do such and such you know they they, they don't factor that sort of thing into it it's just a yeah. thing they're watching a movie but they're not it's real yeah some of them i think they just yeah that's right they, they're not factoring it well you hope they're not factoring it. and if they actually thought about it they would go hang on this is not cool but some of them, I think, are just like, they're just worn out, hollow people. They just don't care. They're like, did you, yeah. the, the footage of um, Pr uh, Prigozhin, who's the, the Russian commander of the Wagner assault forces that were fighting in Bakhmut. So he had a bad day a fortnight ago or a week ago where a whole bunch of his guys were killed in a day. And so he came out in this big public video where he was complaining and saying, like he was talking about his superiors and going, you're fucking corrupt. We haven't been given enough shells and all that. And like, it's in Russian. I can't understand a word of Russian. But what was interesting was they were, even though it was in Russian, obviously it had come from a Russian news source because they were still beeping out words. Like occasionally it was going beep, beep. <laughs> I didn't know who's swearing. But he's a Prigozhin man. <laughs> He's a good front man for, the, for a military organisation. His eyes, just are calm. But his mouth is like he's fucking yeah. furious. But it's at night time. I'm laying in the background behind him. 
is about 70 of his dead soldiers on the ground. You can't see them real clearly because it's nighttime, yeah. but that's the background, the backdrop. He's, like it was, it, it's a, something I will never forget from this war. Surreal. That video, that's kind of like a telling thing. It's just mm. crazy. Yeah. Crazy, man. Well, should we wind this up? Sure. Cool. Go for a beer. I'll be here if you want to be. I'll have a beer. Yeah, cheers, mate. Nice. Cool. Uh, there we go. There's me thinking I was going to get like a countdown for when you actually start.